Father, I come before you now in the name of Jesus, and you've heard every prayer request that we have offered to you in the room today. I pray for those that will join us online. Uh, I pray that you will um, help everyone understand that you are more willing to answer our prayers than we are many times to offer them. Um, I pray for the, the health issues that were expressed here. Uh, I pray for people that are dealing with uh, relationship issues. Um, I pray for anyone that is dealing with financial issues and just all of these other things. I pray that each of us will realize our need for you and our need to draw closer to you. I pray that as we get into the word today, we'll recognize uh, what an incredible example John the Baptist was of someone who is devoted to Jesus, who is willing to um, be a minister in the kingdom. And I pray that in whatever ways, um, great or small, at least as we assess great or small, we would be willing to serve you in your kingdom. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to look at John three twenty-two through 36. I realize that's a little bit, now we're kind of going back and forth from Sunday. Sunday we looked at John uh, chapter 4, and we introduced the, the outcast woman at the well. And we're going to look at that again this Sunday. Uh, we're going to look at the second half of that story. But today we're going to back up and we're going to look at the end of John chapter 3. So we're going to begin in verse 22. And we're going to go all the way through the end of the chapter. And as we'll see, this is about John the Baptist. And these are the the last words of John the Baptist, uh, the last time he is uh, uh, covered in the Gospel of John. Here it is uh, from the New American Standard Bible. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing Now, John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was an abundance of water there and people were coming and being baptized for John had had not yet been thrown into prison. Then a matter of dispute developed on the part of John's disciples with the Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, talking about Jesus, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all the people are coming to him. John replied, a person can receive not even one thing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the friend of the groom who stands and listens to him rejoices greatly because of the groom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. And that's the, that's my theme for uh, our lesson tonight. That's John 3.30. That's an easy verse for you to memorize. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. The one who is only from the earth is of the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of this, he testifies And no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God sent speaks the words of God, for he does not give the spirit sparingly. The father loves the son and has entrusted all things to his hand. The one who believes in the son has eternal life, but the one who does not obey the son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John consistently testifies that he is not the man. He's not the Messiah. He's been sent to prepare the way for the Messiah, right? 
And that's what he says here with his last words. So we have now returned to the witness of John the Baptist. Um, Jesus joins John in baptizing people as a symbol of their repentance. So even though Jesus is baptizing, although, by the way, as we see in John chapter 4, and I read this, I focused on John 4, 4 through 14 Sunday, but I read the verses leading into it. And John 4, 2 says in a parenthetical, although Jesus himself did not baptize, his disciples baptized, right? Because he didn't want there to be any confusion between the baptism of John and the baptism that Jesus would ultimately perform by pouring out the spirit on all people or Christian baptism, which is in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and is symbolic of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Well, obviously, Jesus had not yet been crucified or buried or resurrected, so there was no way for baptism to symbolize that. So we're still doing John's baptism here, but Jesus and his disciples are following the same pattern. It is a baptism that it, uh, that has the purpose of symbolizing repentance, okay? And really, Christian baptism does that as well. It just goes further in that symbolism, right? Um, so, uh, this tells us that John has moved north along the Jordan uh, in the Decapolis near Samaria on the west side of the Jordan. And I brought up a map for quite a while on Sunday, so I'm not going to bring the map back up. But uh, essentially, John has been baptizing down south closer in Judea or just across the, the Jordan from Judea. And Judea is that surrounding state that, that is around uh, Jerusalem, okay? So all of the Judeans, and these are primarily the Jews, are coming to John uh, to the Jordan River to repent and be baptized by him. So then John moves further north up the Jordan. He moves out of Judea and he moves all the way in between Samaria, which we talked about on Sunday, right? The Samaritans and the Jews did not have a good relationship for a variety of reasons. Um, and we'll speak about it in more detail Sunday. Uh, but the Samaritans were, um, they were devout but they didn't follow the, the scripture to its fullest. I don't know. The Samaritans kind of remind me of, uh, let me think. Let's say Seventh-day Adventists, okay? They have their own particular way of interpreting scripture, right? And they're very, very focused on the law and so forth. But there are many things that they do not accept that... Uh, Orthodox Christians or Protestant Christians do accept. And of course, the, you know, the biggest thing for them is the Sabbath. That's why they're called Seventh-day Adventists. They, um, they are very, very strong on you need to observe the Sabbath. That's when they worship and so forth. I'm not saying they're identical theologically. I'm just trying to show you that this is a group that uh, in terms of its relationship with Protestants or, or evangelical Christians, th there's kind of a similitude there. Uh, the Samaritans were fairly devout, um, but they just, they focused on the Pentateuch, that is the first five books of the Bible, but they also kind of added things in there that agreed with uh, their theology, their doctrine, right? Which really kind of reminds me of, say, Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay? They have their own translation of the Bible, and their translation of the Bible is not accurate when it concerns a literal rendering of the Hebrew and Greek. What they do is they import ideas into their translation to 
force it to agree with their preconceived uh, theology and doctrine. Okay, I won't get into details. I'm just trying to provide. I, I, again, I'm not saying Seventh Day Adventists or Jehovah's Witnesses are identical to Samaritans. I'm just trying to show you that there are groups, right, that perhaps we would not agree with, um, and certainly we shouldn't agree with Jehovah's Witnesses. They have a lot of divergent doctrinal ideas, but this gives you some idea as to the theological differences between Samaritans and Jews. Now, I covered briefly the uh, significance of Samaritans as far as their uh, ethnic differences, right? Um, but uh, in any event, I say that because John has moved into territory that is largely, well, uh, I won't say largely. It is far more Gentile territory, okay? There's a, there's a reason. You know what? Lige, if you can, just go ahead and bring that map up there. I wasn't going to bring this map up there, but I'm making so many references to this map that I might as well just go ahead and bring it up there. And I'll grab this. I'll grab my, uh, my laser pointer again so I can show you where he was, okay? All right. So... This is where John moved, okay? Look, here's Samaria right here, okay? Here's the Decapolis. This is Gentile territory right here, right? So it says John has moved up north, up here. Wow. So here's Galilee, Jews up here, Samaritans, Gentiles. You see the possible significance here, okay? Now, it says that Jesus and his disciples have moved out. They have been uh, previously, the conversation that Jesus has had with Nicodemus is on the heels of his going to Jerusalem, which is right here for the Passover. Then it says that Jesus moved into the Judean territory and started baptizing. Well, that means here's Judea, but he's baptizing over here. Okay. Now, it doesn't put it here, but Bethany beyond the Jordan was over here, and that's where John was previously. All right. That makes sense. Um, so there's a very real possibility that that's where uh, John had been. OK, uh, that um, excuse me, Jesus was baptizing over here where John had previously been and John had moved up here. All right. Now, there may be another reason that John had moved up here. Um, John may have been trying to move out of any territory that was controlled by Herod Antipas, although Herod Antipas controlled territory that was very near here. Okay. All right. So you can get rid of the map now, Elijah. Thank you so much for doing that. John the Baptist is the only one I'm talking about right now. No, John that wrote this didn't do any baptizing unless as one of the disciples in this particular, all of the, this is what's confusing. And by the way, this is why John, the writer of the gospel, never mentions his own name in this gospel. He just calls himself the beloved disciple. The pre premier John in John's gospel is John the Baptist, right? That's who we're talking about here. All right. Thank you for asking that. So I could clarify that. All right. So our gospel says that, um, John moved there because there was an abundance of water. But as I indicated just now, other factors may have gone into this decision. It was Gentile territory. John preached to the crowds. That's what it says. He didn't just preach to Jews. He preached to the crowds. Okay. And this included non-Jews. In Luke's gospel, we find soldiers 
asking John what they must do to repent. These are Roman soldiers, not Jews, right? It would stand to reason that Gentiles were baptized by John, not just Jews. Further, when the Samaritans responded favorably to Jesus after the woman's testimony in chapter 4, which we're going to see this Sunday, the Lord tells his disciples that they have entered into a ministry that had been started by others. All right. Listen to what Jesus says. And again, we'll read this again Sunday. But Jesus says this to his disciples, right? Jesus talks to the woman further. He tells her about her life. She runs, and you saw this in the, in the video uh, on Sunday. She runs back to the town. She's embarrassed and ashamed, you know, by, to even be around a well where all these women are. And yet now she's just bold, runs into town and tells them, come see a man that told me everything that I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? Right? Um, so the whole town turns out. Well, why would they all come running just based on that testimony? Okay. Well, obviously the Holy Spirit was doing a work there in their hearts, right? The Holy Spirit was convicting them as the result of her testimony to them. However, I think there's a very real possibility that it was because they were impacted by John's preaching, as in John the Baptist's preaching, right? Jesus says this in John 4, 38, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others, not another, but others, plural, have labored and you have come into their labor. Well, I think the others were this woman and her testimony and John the Baptist and those that had responded to John's gospel who were testifying to the Samaritans. Your testimony matters. Are you sharing the gospel? Are you shining the light? Are you letting Jesus impact you to the degree that like the woman, you're open and sharing with people? Okay. So, um, that's, uh, that's the, I think the significance of John moving up North. Then it says for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Well, this is more evidence that the information that is found in the synoptic gospels was circulating by the time the fourth gospel was written. And again, we don't know when John's gospel was written, right? The fourth gospel, John's gospel. Okay. Um, I have landed in the territory that says it was probably written in the 90s. It's the last gospel. It was probably written last. Um, the apocalypse, uh, Revelation, we would call it, right? The book of Revelation, uh, which was also written by the same author, John, was written in the 90s when John was exiled to the island of Patmos. Um, it is likely that the, the, the at least first John, the letter that is ascribed to this same author, was written in the 90s. This was a time of great persecution against Christians. However, it doesn't change the inspiration or the authorship of this gospel if it was written earlier. Um, it may have been written prior to A.D. 70, which is the destruction of Jerusalem. Again, we don't know. There's some evidence that it might have been written earlier. However, I think that there's still good evidence that it is not just the fourth gospel in the order that we encounter it in our Bibles, but it's the last one that was written. He is assuming throughout the gospel, I believe, he is assuming that those who receive this have a degree of familiarity with the information that we find in the synoptic gospels, right? Um, the synoptics 
clearly indicate that John had been arrested. That's found in Mark 1.14 and Matthew 4.12. They both recorded that Jesus continued preaching John's message of repentance after he was imprisoned, right? So it's the same thing as Jesus baptizing. He's still preaching that message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's his initial message. Same message that John was preaching. Jesus, however, is the one who's bringing the kingdom of heaven, uh, of heaven into their midst and into our midst because he's the king, right? Further, um, we find in Mark 6, 14 through 29 and Matthew 14, 1 through 12, an extensive account of John's execution after he had been imprisoned. And Luke uh, 9, 7 through 9 also mentions John briefly. All right. Then it says, a matter of dispute developed on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. Well, it would appear that John the Baptist was not in agreement with the, the, uh, the traditional practices of the Jews concerning purification. Well, this reminds us, what was, the, what was the first miracle that Jesus performed? What was his first miracle? He turned water into wine. He turned water into wine. What were the vessels that he used to turn the water into wine? They were stone jars that were used for what? Purification. Okay. So Jesus takes, you know, the legalism of tradition and turns it into the joy of the gospel. It's a great message, right? But it would appear that Jesus and John were both on the same page uh, when it concerns this idea of purification, right? This, uh, this tradition that was handed down from the elders. Um, Jews would have associated John's baptism with purification. So maybe that's why there was some sort of discussion re regarding this. John's message focused, however, on the genuine change of heart and mind rather than mere external observances about washing hands and pots and all these sorts of things. Those things purify no one. Jesus taught this too. I pointed this out when we looked at that first miracle. However, it bears repeating. The, Lord's was at, the Lord was at odds with the Pharisees when he refused to observe the ceremonial washings passed down via tradition. We find that in the Synoptic Gospels. Jesus and his disciples simply wouldn't do it. They didn't wash their hands. Now, you need to separate this from what we understand, right? For us, we, we know washing your hands is hygienic, okay? We're going to use soap or we're going to use hand sanitizer. Are you all still washing your hands? Yes. Right? <laughs> I mean, post-pandemic. Oh, look at that. I just spit. That was nice. <laughs> trying to talk about being clean and hygienic, and I just spit right. But fortunately, the chairs are way back there, so you're fine. Here's an interesting story. Uh, the, the pastor that uh, I was saved as the result of his preaching, okay, preached at a huge church, the North Phoenix Baptist Church in Phoenix, Arizona. And I had always sat with the youth. I started as a, a Christian, as a teenager, and the youth always sat. There was a ramp. They had an, a balcony and they had two ramps that went down. And the youth always sat on this. If you're facing the stage, this audience left ramp. If you're on the stage, the stage right ramp. That's where the youth always sat, right on that ramp. Um, however, it was, uh, it was like a Wednesday night. I was a young adult by this point, and my best friend and I decided we were going to sit in the very front. 
This is where all the older people sat, okay? They're like up there in the front, right, right underneath the pulpit, and there was a sweet old lady that turned, <laughs> this is so great, that turned to me and she looked and she said, oh, you're sitting close to the fountain where the glory comes out. <laughs> <laughs> and I kept thinking, you know, because I had worked the cameras before this, this church was on television. I've seen Pastor Jackson preach and sometimes there's a little bit of spray that comes out. So I was thinking, yeah, more than, more than glory is coming out. So anyway, that's what that reminded me of. But no, this wasn't about being hygienic and, and getting rid of germs. They didn't know what germs were back then. This was about washing the cooties of the world off of you. Okay. No, we can't be, you know, defiled by the world. Well, the Lord doesn't want you to be defiled by the world, but Jesus says that defilement comes out of here and comes out of here. In fact, this is what he said. This is Jesus speaking in Matthew 15, 18 through 20. But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart and those things defile the person for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, acts of adultery, other immoral sexual acts, thefts, false testimonies, and slanderous statements. These are the things that defile the person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the person. So I would venture to say that John the Baptist and Jesus were in harmony about this, okay? That John was standing for these same principles. So John's disciples... Uh, he still had disciples that were following him that didn't follow Jesus. Remember, when we first encountered John in chapter 1, Andrew and another disciple who is not named um, follow Jesus immediately after John points him out and says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So they follow Jesus. They follow him home. And they start following him from that point forward. They find other disciples. Andrew gets his brother uh, Simon, who becomes Peter, who becomes the chief of the, the disciples. They go back to Galilee. They track down Nathaniel. All right. First, Philip. Jesus finds Philip and then he tracks down Nathaniel. So those are these first disciples. Right. But there were still disciples of John the Baptist that had not transferred over to Jesus. Well, John didn't kick them out. OK, but neither did he try to uh, secure their loyalty to him exclusively. So they said, that is, John's disciples came to him. John the Baptist's disciples came to him and said, he is baptizing. That is, Jesus is baptizing. And all the people are coming to him. I can almost hear it in their voices. You know, man, they're not coming to you anymore, John. They're going to Jesus now. Well, um, they hadn't yet decided to follow Jesus, so they appear to have been jealous of Jesus' success. He was baptizing more people than their master at this point. Well, the Baptist helps them to understand that they needn't be jealous because the focus must shift from John to Jesus. There's your application. If I've talked too much already, that's the conclusion. That's the application. Your focus needs to shift from you or anyone else in your life that gets all of your time and energy and attention to Jesus. Jesus uh, John the Baptist says this, He who has the bride is the groom, but the friend of the groom who stands and listens to him rejoices greatly because of the groom's voice. Now I'm going to tell you something here that I had heard at one point in time previously, and I was unsure whether it was accurate as far as Jewish tradition was concerned related to 
weddings and marriage. Okay. But it is affirmed by uh, Beasley Murray in the word biblical commentary. And it is actually kind of shocking. But after you let it soak in, you'll, th- you'll see it's kind of cool. So from our perspective, John is likening himself to the best man at a wedding. Is the best man the groom? No. no. Okay. The star of the wedding, well, in our culture, the star of the wedding is the bride. I I've always tell every wedding that I officiate, and, and before I ever get to that point, you know, the groom and everybody else needs to understand this is about the bride. You just need to figure that out and get over yourself. This is not about you. You're the groom. That's, that's great. And that's awesome. But it's not about you. It's not about the mom of the bride. It's not about the matron of honor. It's not about the best man. It is about the bride. Okay. However, this ancient wedding and this perspective, it's about the groom. Okay. John says, I'm, I'm like the best man. Okay. Jesus is the groom. So who's the bride? Yeah. His Disciples, his followers, the church, inevitably. All right. Those who believe are the bride. In fact, the church is called the bride, both by Paul and this author of our gospel, John. In Ephesians 5.32, in that passage about husbands and wives, um, the apostle Paul says very clearly, you know, the relationship between a husband and wife is not about that. It's about the relationship between Christ and the church. Right. And then in Revelation 19.7, right. The bride comes down and the groom meets the bride. Okay. The role of the best man, however, pales in comparison. That is in our culture, the role of the best man pales in comparison to what John may be referring to here when he says that he rejoices because of the groom's voice. What does that mean? Buckle your seatbelts. Here's the context. This is uh, George R. Beasley Murray. I think that's his first name from the word biblical commentary. His role, that is John the Baptist's role, is likened to that of the bridegroom's friend at a wedding. Among the friends of the bride and groom, in Judea at least, two had a position of trust regarding them and had to watch over the sexual relations of the young couple. Wow. They led the bride to the groom and kept watch outside the bridal chamber. The voice of the bridegroom is thought to be the triumph shout by which the bridegroom announced to his friends outside that he had been united to a virginal bride. Whoa. Are you ready to have your friend standing outside the hotel room door When the moment happens, that sounds embarrassing to me. However, it's a powerful symbol. We who are in Christ become spiritually intimate and united with him in a way that is impossible and adulterous with a mere human teacher. John the Baptist is saying, that's not the relationship I have with these people. And it never will be. And it cannot be. And apart from the Holy Spirit, it's not the relationship that you and I can have with Jesus, right? Now, I have mainly women in this room. You have a better capability to intuitively, innately, whatever term you want to use, understand union, right, with the groom. 
You know, us men have just got to go, huh? That's weird. Okay. Well, I guess they do those things, right? But don't we say Jesus comes inside? Yeah. Whoa, this is just all super mature stuff, right? Okay. But the union, the flesh union between a husband and wife on earth pales in comparison to the kind of permanent union that you and I can have with Christ because of the entrance of the Holy Spirit into our hearts. Okay. Um, Paul teaches that the physical intimacy of a bride and groom are actually symbolic of this eternal union with Christ and the church. I mentioned that earlier, but here's the passage. Uh, this is part of the passage in Ephesians five, beginning with verse 20, that talks about the relationship between husbands and wives. Paul writes, so husbands also ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church because we are parts of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. If you don't understand this relationship between Jesus and his bride, the church, you can't fully understand what God intended when he created male and female to enter into a one flesh union, right? So people in my position have John the Baptist's attitude and approach, or they should. I want to introduce you to Jesus. He's the groom. You're the bride. Okay. I want to lead you to become intimate with him, not with me. He's your Lord. I'm just a servant. I'm sent to equip and empower and enable you to live for him and to love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Any teacher that solicits loyalty to himself is adulterous and idolatrous. And you need to run away from that teacher. The focus is on Jesus. Well, John the Baptist was certainly focused on Jesus. Now we get to the theme verse for this passage and for tonight's lesson. He must increase. John is saying, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. That's got to be our heart's cry and our constant pursuit. Make Jesus greater in your life and, the, and then in the lives of others around you. Don't put yourself on a pedestal. Ladies, I know it's you, you want a man that puts you on a pedestal. No, you really don't. You want a man that will join you shoulder to shoulder and put Jesus on the pedestal. Walk away from any other man, right? Because your real groom is Christ, right? Whether you're married or not. So if you're married, then encourage your husband, encourage your wife, for those of you that are, that are men, to put Jesus on the pedestal, to lift him up. He must increase, I must decrease. Worship is for God alone. And Jesus is God. John didn't want the glory. He didn't claim anything for himself. He came to serve, ensuring that the bride was spotless and fully intimate with the groom. And John says, he who comes from above is above all. 
The one who is only from the earth is of the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. So obviously John is talking about Jesus. Jesus comes from heaven and is above all. John comes from the earth and testifies to the rest of us who are from the earth. We're just flesh. Okay. We're dust. And we are, you know, brought to life by the spirit of God. Okay. Um, John was trying to testify about Jesus who is from heaven. All people are made of dust and return there until and unless they are joined to the one from whom, uh, the one, excuse me, from heaven who conquered death and who gives eternal life to anyone who will believe in him. Then he says, what he has seen and heard of this, he testifies. He's talking about Jesus is what he has seen and heard of this. He testifies and no one accepts his testimony. Hmm, that's all too often true today. Our gospel has already made this case in the prologue. Remember John 1, 10 and 11? He was in the world and the world came into being through him. That is, Jesus was in the world and the world came into being through him. And yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, that is his own people, and his own people did not accept him. So this is still ongoing. Jesus has a lot of uh, looky-loos, right? Like, you know, you put your house on the market and you have open house. You got this train of people that are like, no, well, I don't know. It's like the kitchen is just in. Oh, that bathroom is too small. The bedroom is looky-loos. Yeah, this is just not meeting my needs. There's lots and lots of people that come to church. You know, they're just shopping. They're just shopping. They're just checking it out, you know? Well, of course they're welcome. But in the end, it's not looky-loos that Jesus is looking for. It's followers. It's faithful followers, okay? He already made this clear to Nicodemus that there's a whole lot of people that are, you know, looking at the miracles that he's done, which are signs, but they just don't really believe. They haven't accepted his testimony, that is Jesus' testimony, that he is the Son of God. John the Baptist's testimony, that Jesus is the Son of God, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The Holy Spirit's testimony to their hearts, that Jesus is the Son of God, okay? Jesus said to Nicodemus, remember, just a couple weeks ago from John 3, 11 and 12, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, Jesus John the Baptist and the Holy Spirit. We speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. And you people, now he's talking to Nicodemus and, you know, all of his set, right? The religious people. He said, you don't accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Okay. So all these people that are coming to John, the majority of them are not accepting that testimony that Jesus is the son of God. However, some do, some did, because John 1, 12, very next verse after John 10 and 11, that says that, you know, most people didn't accept him, says, but as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to be children of God, even to those who believed on his name. So the question is, have you believed that Jesus is the son of God? Have you believed that he is the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world? Okay. Then John says, the one who has accepted his testimony, that is the person who has accepted Jesus' testimony, has certified that God is true. To accept the testimony of Jesus uh, is to accept that he is the son of God, the savior of the world. And that will mean that you are in agreement with the one and true eternally faithful God. 
No one can be in agreement with God and his purposes for human beings if they reject Jesus. Jesus is the only begotten son. No one may know the father apart from the son. So bless all of our other friends and all of these other religious groups who are striving, but they're striving blindly to find God if they're rejecting Jesus. I will say this, anyone who is genuinely seeking God will receive Jesus. Jesus said this in Matthew eleven twenty seven: All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son determines to reveal him. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. You hear the word preached, it introduces you by faith to the Son, and that's how you know the Father. Back to the prologue, at the very end of the prologue, right? Verse 18 says, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has revealed him. If you want to know God, you got to come through Jesus. Then back to our text. For he whom God sent speaks the words of God, for he does not give the Spirit sparingly. Now, at first, that just seems to be two divergent concepts. Speaks the words of God, the Spirit of God, sparing, uh, what does that mean? Well, as we're going to see in the next chapter, Spirit and truth are essential companions, all right? Um, Sunday, we're going to talk about that. Jesus said those who worship the Lord, worship God, must worship him in spirit and in truth, Okay. Um, in Hebrews chapter four, it says that the word of God is living and active. Jesus speaks and is the word of God incarnate. The Holy spirit inspires the word and illuminates and applies the word to the heart and the mind of the listener. The Holy spirit is granted in abundance by Jesus who pours out the spirit, baptizing the believer. That's always going to be the result of you accepting and believing the word, the outpouring of the spirit into your life. Okay. Now, I don't know. You may hear me mention this again uh, on Sunday or thereafter, but I was thinking about this. I think the Lord is seeking to pour out his spirit. Okay. I really do. But I think a lot of people are carrying around vessels that are full of other stuff. Okay. So let's say, you know, You've got a big mug. What's your favorite drink? Okay, I like coffee. You know, have you ever seen people that bring those giant mugs? You know, or, or not mugs, those insulated cups. And they're like, I'm serious, man. You're going to get a bladder infection from all of the Coke you're drinking out of that thing, right? Like this giant thing, you know, and it's full of ice and it's full of your favorite drink and you're just carrying it around. <laughs> all day long, you know, you just carry it around. But what if, you know, there's something better. There's a drink that's better. There's, you know, something that's not only tastes good, but it's amazingly healthy. And you've got a vessel, but you're like, well, yeah, but this is already full. Maybe later. Right? Don't, I can't really, that's where we're at. Okay. Come to church on Sunday. Come to church on Wednesday and have that thing empty and hold it up for him to fill it. Amen? Because I'm telling you, man, I just, you know, I sense that the Lord wants to do something in our midst. 
And I think we're just so distracted and so full of ourselves, we just, we're not even holding the cup up. Hold the cup up. Let it be filled up, right? Um, the Father loves the Son and has entrusted all things to his hand. Well, Jesus also testified in Matthew's gospel that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Whereas John the Baptist received his ministry from God to point to Jesus, Jesus points to himself. I can remember there was a Christian musician back in the late 70s and early 80s that I listened to quite a bit. His name was Keith Green. He actually passed away uh, in a plane crash over here in East Texas, not far outside of Taylor. Uh, Taylor Tyler. Uh, he had like a ranch out there, and he boarded a small plane with a couple of his kids and a family of six, and they overloaded the plane, and the plane crashed. And he passed away. But he had been a musician, and he had kind of come out of sort of the back end of the Jesus movement. There were, there were actually a lot of seekers, right, in that time. They were, you know, seeking in the wrong places. They were dropping acid and listening to the foolishness of Timothy O'Leary um, and all of this stuff. But, you know, in the wake of that, they just found that completely empty. A lot of the hippies came to Jesus because they were like, you know what? This is nonsense. Free sex, free love, free drugs, whatever. This is a dead end. But Jesus is the real thing. Well, Keith Green was one of those seekers. And he said, I, you know, I looked everywhere. Into all these different religions and teachers. And he said, and everybody would point to Jesus as a good teacher. And he said, and Jesus pointed to himself. So he said, you know what? I'm going to follow Jesus. Okay. John pointed to Jesus. Jesus pointed to himself. Follow Jesus. The father loves the son and has entrusted everything into his hand. Uh, a little further along in our gospel in John 5, 19 through 20, Jesus said this, therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing for whatever the father does, these things, the son does in the same way for the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the father will show him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. So everything that you and I have is from God. And we received that because of Jesus. Jesus is completely, when he was on earth, was completely aligned with the Father. That's why um, it can be said that uh, the Father has entrusted all things into his hands, right? All right. And to conclude this evening, um, John 3.36, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life. Do you believe in the Son? Then you have eternal life. That's what it says. But the one who does not obey the son, wait, it doesn't say does not believe. It says does not obey. Hmm. Will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's what we're saved from, by the way, the wrath of God. Hell is not Satan's territory. Satan is more terrified of hell than you could possibly be. Hell is his eternal end. And it will be the, etern the eternal end of anyone who rejects Jesus. Jesus came to save us from condemnation from the wrath of God, which will be poured out. You can be, the Holy Spirit can be poured out on you or the wrath of God can be poured out on you one day. Okay. If you believe you have eternal life and if you have eternal life, you, if you believe you will obey Christ, trust and obey faith results in obedience, obedience, good works. That's the result of real faith. What did James say? 
Jesus' half-brother James became the first pastor of the Jerusalem church, and he said, faith without works is dead. The wrath of God is what comes upon those who have disbelieved and disobey. That's Ephesians 5, 6 and Colossians 3, 6. And the result is eternal destruction. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That's not a poem. That's actually an old hymn. All right? Amen? Amen. All right. And it's 8 o'clock. Beautiful. Thank you for joining us online.